I too want to welcome you this morning and uh, encourage you next week to come on out to the park. It's an opportunity to combine the both services and for people that lots of times there's kind of second service people and first service people and you get a, get a better flavor of who's uh, at the church here. Um, lots of things to do out there in terms of the park and ball fields and and volleyball courts and that kind of stuff. So if you got any balls and that kind of things, bring them out. We can see if we can get some things going. Uh, if, if you're new in the community, I think, is that 38? About five miles up on 38, the park. So uh, that's kind of the direction that you'll need to head, and you'll see that right on the right-hand side there. So let me just pray again as we begin the today. Father, as we dig into this topic of serving, I would just ask that your spirit would uh, work in our hearts and um, change us, change us from the inside out, change our motives. And so we want to give this time to you. These things we pray in your name. Amen. One doesn't have to look very far to realize that sin, as it came into the garden, left, I believe, this hole in our hearts. And it leads, this hole in our hearts leads to a journey, a quest for every man, for every woman, every teenager, for children. And if you're taking notes from the sermon outline here in the bulletin, every person has a quest for meaning. Oftentimes when I sit across the desk from people and they're struggling with life, I ask this question, where do you find meaning in your life, purpose? See, I think as we look at that, we wonder and go, where does sin intersect this quest to be have meaning in our lives? Now, I would say this as well. Some people believe that the hole in our heart is a desire for God. And I go, I don't think that's biblical. Now, I recognize Romans chapter 1, it talks about everybody is aware of God, but Romans 3 actually points out that no one is seeking after Him. And yet there's this hole in our lives that we, got, we seem to want to fill. And let me put on the screen two aspects of this quest for meaning, what I believe it's all about. And the first one is this, the desire to be loved and accepted. We want to come to a place where we're born with this need of relationship that says, I want to feel loved. That is there, but now that's not the one we're going to really be dealing with today. But it's the second one. I said it this way, the desire for significance. Interesting word because it really talks about the value of what we do. It's that which we come to a place where we're satisfied. Satisfaction. Have you ever accomplished something? Building a house, maybe you're a builder, or you wrote an article, or you did something, you, you did something really well, and you kind of sat back and said, Ah, I did it. And there's that satisfaction within us. That's that issue of significance. But the second one of significance, it is deeply interwoven with the issue of serving God. But let me point something out. The quest to be loved and the quest for significance gets distorted. Matter of fact, think of it this way as an illustration. I don't know if they still do this today on the when they go to school and the playgrounds, but when I was growing up, I lived in a or I grew up for five years in a one-room schoolhouse, okay? And, and we'd be captains. You'd go out to play for all the kids for grades one through six, and you'd go out, and then you'd begin to pick sides. Remember that? 
And the captains would go, I get Billy, I get Sam. And then all of a sudden, there's always these one or two, three kids who are picked last. And kind of like, oh, you take Sam. What goes through that child's mind at that point? And and you you really don't have to even think about it to go this. The child is going, do they care about me? Do they love me? I'm no good? You see, those questions right away there, it heads toward that issue of of meaning and significance and, and being accepted. But the, but the challenge is, is that this quest for meaning oftentimes is very elusive. Matter of fact, I think the Scripture teaches that. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? A holiday tomorrow, Right? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north, and around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full, and the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Now, now the common view, this was uh, Solomon. And if you know Solomon at all, he had great wealth. He had wisdom out of this world. And he had adulation. He had people wanting to be his friend. and, And he had fame. And then he sits on, goes up on top of a mountain and he looks down and he surveyed his life and life as it goes on and he said, it's all vanity. It's without meaning. And this issue faces everyone today, even as we walk with Christ. See, the quest to feel loved and the quest for significance runs deep within our soul. And we grow up in a flawed world. We have flawed families. We have flawed churches who all contribute to the distorted understanding of that as well. And even as believers, we can fall into a trap of believing things in this area and of what the world is really teaching. I I think of a guy, for example, Vince Lombardi. You know that name if you're a football fan. And he had this desire, this need to win. Matter of fact, one of his phrases, actually it wasn't from him, but you'll you'll recognize this phrase, winning isn't everything, It's the only thing. That's what he taught. His team, winning is the only thing in life. Now, as followers of Christ, we go, that's not true. That's false. But we have to admit this. To win once in a while feels really good, doesn't it? To always be a loser? (laughs) Do we really like that? But think of it this way. It's such a powerful motivator. We open up the report card, all A's. And our hearts are going, ah, satisfied. One B and five D's. Ugh. But think of it as well. Winning 
that last shot at the game or goal in hockey or hitting the home run at the end of the game in baseball. They come around, oh, I'm satisfied. See, all of that adds to this issue of significance. And think of this, a little child in a Sunday school class. The teacher asks a question, and all of a sudden, he raises his hand or she raises his hand and has the answer. And do you know what at that moment is going on? There is a satisfaction. I know it, and everybody doesn't know it. In counseling, you see this quest for meaning and significance and relationship so deep, and it's so ingrained with us. And the words of a father, if you get a father that is telling his sons, especially his sons, and says, I'm proud of you, it makes a profound difference in the identity of that son. And you get parents whose words wound their children. It makes a profound difference in that quest for meaning in life. I remember a woman in her late 30s years ago, was sitting across from my desk and just struggling with life. And she had come to that place and started digging a little bit and realizing that she was so working to be accepted by her father. She wanted to be the, the consummate businesswoman. And the interesting thing, was, as I dug a little bit more, all of a sudden it comes out, and go, why are you so passionate about your acceptance from your dad? It's this, that she had been rejected by her mother at, a very, at, at numerous times when she was a teenager and younger, her mother had come to her and said, I wish you have been, would have been a boy. And how that just set the framework for searching for meaning in her life. She had given up any hope of approval from her mom. But folks, this quest for meaning, the quest for love is so deep. And it slides, this, this issue of significance so slides into how and why we serve God. And there's a subtle line at times that I think we cross that we don't even realize it. So the quest for meaning can push us really towards some distorted motives of why we serve. And I've been trying to bring these into this series because we have to go deeper than just me exhorting you and go, okay, i got to serve, and it's just a, a piece of my will. I'm going to force myself to serve. Motives matter. Uh, one, for your notes, I said another twisted, in one sense, distorted motive. I said it this way. We serve to be praised and accepted by others. And we have to admit that sometimes we serve to impress people. Matter of fact, sometimes it's our own selves, if we really want to admit it. And we like the praise of people. Somebody's coming along and saying, good job. It gives us security. It gives a purpose. It begins to fill that hole of meaning. I came across a quote this week. Look at what it says. Enjoying encouragement is fine, but seeking it isn't. And sometimes one can't tell the difference. And that is so true. So when people are on this journey to be loved and be valued for what they do, we marry it though with the flesh. And motives can become twisted as to why we serve. And I see this at times. I think we can start out with good motives and all of a sudden be sliding to those which are a bit suspect. And we want to be noticed. We want to be praised. 
Let, let me put another quote up here I came across. We serve Jesus to serve our own reputation. And it is so subtle. We begin to let other people's opinions and what they think about us defining us even in this area. That we want people to be praising us. But when we serve to obtain the honor of men, I understand this, we really get nothing from God. He, he views that, frankly, as hypocrisy and not service. And so there's that tendency, we, we, we care more about what people think than what God thinks. And folks, the world pushes us here in this quest for meaning. You think of the accolades of being all state and how that, oh, and having the best looking daughter at a pageant. And doesn't that feed into our meaning as a parent? We buy into it as, as parents. And we begin to spend money on our kids' achievement. And folks, here's the challenge is we can talk ourselves into it, but so much of it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God and everything to do with the kingdom of earth. That's the challenge. But as parents, we want privilege, prestige. We want our kids to be the best. We want our children to be number one. And you know, you know what? It's the same... That's 2,000 years ago. Let me show you a passage. Matthew 20. Here's a mom. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons and she knelt respectively to ask a favor. What's your request, he asked. And she replied, in your kingdom, please let my two boys sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. That is the world's system. Here's a, a, a mom wanting her sons to be recognized. Wanting them to be special in the eyes of others. She wanted her sons to associate with the right people, with the important people. And, and this attitude, folks, comes from the flesh, from that side of us that which is not godly. And it begins to define our purpose and our quest for meaning in life. But you understand, even this, I want my sons to be the best, this was a theme throughout the time of Jesus for the disciples. Let me show you another one. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Now this is a training mission. Jesus is walking with them, and, and behind them he hears this, there's, there's argument going on, and look what it says. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. <laughs> they didn't get it. See, the quest for being number one on top, it drives us, it gives us meaning, and it subtly, it's very wrong. Let, let me show you something in John 13, but just to kind of clarify, we're gonna, I'm going to show you a video. But one of the things I want to say is, I don't want you to be discouraged when you, when you look at the motives either. I want you to feel appreciated, and many of you serve here, and thank you for that. But I don't want to manipulate you either and say, I'm going to try to guilt you into serving. No, that's we're not what, where we want to serve out of. 
understand that we need to know the love of God. And as we experience His love in our lives, service then becomes a response. Not just some duty, a function of paying God back. So we want to go to a different place in looking at this service. But we want to, we want to, I want to take a peek at a text here this morning. And I want to play it for you. It's on the video. It's, uh, it's the NIV. It's word-for-word word NIV, actually, if you're using that Bible. But go ahead and, uh, and let's play that. It was now the day before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He had always loved those in the world who were his own, and he loved them to the very end. Jesus and his disciples were at supper. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas. And and there's a very important piece to this night that really doesn't isn't portrayed in this particular passage. And look at Luke 22. Here's what was also going on that night. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This was the argument that was taking place at the night of of that Last Supper with Jesus. They had argued on the road and months, I don't know the timeline between the two, but here's month, at least months later, they're still arguing who is the greatest. And, and folks, don't, don't we understand, that's where the world is pushing us. And pride, the, the quest is, who's the greatest? Who's on top? And in the midst of this, there's this argument, and, and Jesus gets up, and I think he killed the argument here. Matter of fact, in, in doing some study on this, some of you have probably looked at uh, Da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. Anybody ever taken a peek at that? One of the beliefs on that painting, when you look at it close, I googled it to, to look online, and is that he really, they really believe that Da Vinci is actually portraying the argument. If you look at the way it's painted, take a peek at it someday. But see, the truth is, being important, being esteemed, number one, that is the attitude that the world lives on. Who's the most powerful? Who's the most successful? Who wins? Who's number one? And the world pushes us down that path for meaning and purpose. And You know, when you look at that, with that argument, I can't help but wonder if Jesus wasn't very disappointed. He had been talking about sacrifice and serving to these guys for years. And they come to the night before he was going to go to the cross. And they're still at it. And somehow they, the disciples, did not understand. See, Jesus had invited them into a new kingdom. Into a new way of living. And these guys were still living in this world. And the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, has a different set of rules. The title of the sermon, it's upside down. 
And I, don't th- I think we forget that, that the kingdom of God has a whole different set of principles and rules to live by. And they had missed it. It's not about prestige. It's not about status. It's not about position. And I think of the earthly kingdom and the principles that it runs on. I think it's frankly this. Look out for the self first. That's really what the world is pushing. It leads to greed. Lots of treasure. Got to have lots of treasure. Got to have people admire me. I got to have lots of fans. I got to have lots of Twitter followers. And how many friends do I have? And how many Facebook friends do I have? And what kind of position do I have? And what kind of education do I have? On and on and on. But this event in the upper room, while the disciples were arguing, Jesus comes and gives one last lesson. The final lesson before the cross. He didn't have time to do a sermon series on serving. But he gets up, and that picture of him getting up. Well, let me read it again for you. Verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured the water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that that was wrapped around him. So just put yourself there. In that room with the disciples, he strips down to his underwear, puts the towel around. And if they were arguing at the time, I am guessed that that would have just silenced them. Everybody looked at him like they did and go, what is this guy doing But he was working within the kingdom of God rules. He understood that. And the disciples were still in the world's rules. And they didn't get it. But let me try to illustrate this in one sense, the the depth of this. Maybe some of you will go to lunch here afterward, and you go to a restaurant, and what if they were to seat you, and the table is still dirty, and and the waitress comes up and says, hey, I'll send the busboy out, and he's going to clean the table off. And and the busboy comes out to you, and all of a sudden you look at him and go, it's Jesus. What would you do at that point? How would you respond I think, wouldn't we respond like Peter? Let me put Peter's words. He came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? You understand the context there. I should be washing yours. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. So if we're in that restaurant and we recognize that Jesus was the busboy, I think we'd be get up off our chair and say, Jesus, no, you sit here, I'll clean the table off. Don't you think that would be a natural response? I go, yeah. But understand what this picture that we saw on the screen, the idea of washing feet was the most humbling and the lowest thing that you could do. Matter of fact, if if Jews had, had some wealth, they would have servants... And they wouldn't, if they were Jewish servants, they wouldn't let the Jewish servants wash somebody else's feet. You would find a Gentile slave to wash their feet if he had any money. Why? It was so demeaning in that culture. It was the lowest of the low thing that you could do was to wash somebody's feet. And, and folks, this attitude of Jesus... He says, 
guys, I'm serving you. Serve one another. But there's a point to this that I think we have to get in our development, in our walk with Christ. And I said it this way, the main point for today, biblical serving begins with humility. And this is the upside-down kingdom, the upside-down rules. The world tells you to be great, to be noticed, valued. And the kingdom says, no, don't seek glory, don't seek honor. Seek humility. And by the way, Jesus had already taught him a lesson like this before. He said they came and you know they were arguing who is the greatest, and he comes and he says this You want to be great? Serve others. That's where greatness is found. But if we want to stop and admit it, we struggle to serve to that level, to humble ourselves to that place. And we kind of go to a place where we go, okay, Lord, you know what? I'll serve other Christians. But you know those people who are really bad sinners? I might get dirty. And what if someone thinks that I'm associating with them? And you know what? What if they're gay? And you're trying to love and serve them. What would Jesus respond to that? You know, I think he'd say, why are you worrying about what others are thinking? But do you realize in this account, he goes around to every disciple and he washed even the one that was going to betray him and send him to the cross who sold him out for some money. He washed Judas's feet. Folks, Jesus is the model for serving. And it starts with humility. With serving in humility. Look at Mark 20. In light of this, look at this verse. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. There's a false kind of twisted thing. We think Jesus came to be worshipped. And that's not really true. After the fact, yes. But this mission to world, He came to serve us. And He's the pattern of profound humility. Ministering to others' needs. You think of His whole three years of ministry was serving, serving, serving in humility. But look how John writes at the end of this lesson. Verse 14. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, how do we know if we're moving toward an attitude, a heart of servanthood with humility? And let me just throw a couple questions at you that maybe we need to ask. And the first one would be like this. Would I do this thing if I knew that no one other than me and God would ever know that I had done it? Would that work for us? How about another one? 
When is the last time you served someone knowing that no one would notice? You just It's purely God and you. You see, you understand where motives can go awry. They go in the wrong place. Look at Matthew 6.1. The context of the Lord's Prayer right before that. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward for your Father in heaven. See, the man was out there in front of everybody wanting everybody to notice him. But let me ask you another question. Is there any act of service that is beneath you? Cleaning toilets? Changing dirty diapers? Staining a wall on the the church? See, oftentimes we want to serve that fits our terms, our lifestyle. Does it fit my schedule? Does it fit my kids' schedule? But let me, I came across a quote and some reading I was doing this week and look at Francis Chan said, it doesn't apply to serving, but let me just throw this out. God doesn't want religious duty. He doesn't want a distracted, half-hearted, fine, I'll read a chapter this week for you. Now are you happy attitude? But let me change that quote just a little bit. God doesn't want religious duty. He doesn't want a distracted, half-hearted, fine, I'll serve my time this week. Now are you happy? Doesn't that fit? I I don't have time to go to Philippians 2, but where it points out that we are called to humble ourselves and look out for the interests of others. But let me throw up when you think of, okay, what's the opposite of humility? Let me put the picture on the screen. This is it. It's about me. As I was studying that there was kind of an aha moment I had never really thought about in, in the process of this. As I pondered Christ serving for us and coming to be served, this was my aha, is that Christ didn't serve first and then humble himself. He humbled himself first. It was humility. Then it went to serving. That was the order. And I think that applies so much to us because to say it differently, when true humility comes in our lives, in our hearts, you know what will happen? You cannot not serve you'll keep serving the king. When it takes place, and when we know that we're loved by God, we know that we're a sinner, and he invites us into the kingdom, and he says, it just becomes a response. And we begin to walk away from the earthly kingdom that needs prestige, that needs power, that needs winning, that needs needing to be praised, needing people to love me. And when that takes place, when we start serving within the kingdom with those upside-down rules, there's something else that happens in that God gives us a profound sense of significance. And the motive is not about self at all. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Look at verse 17. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. 
Now, I don't know if you caught in the NIV version. It said this, Happy are you if you do them. You see, humility gives us and pushes us when we serve. There is a satisfying element that it's just Jesus in me and it's the Holy Spirit in me. And it leads to serving at church. It leads to serving at the, on your job, in your community, your family, your friends, your, out there in terms of other people around you. You look out for the interests of others and it becomes a way of life. Jesus didn't come to serve. He came to serve us. Why? Because He loved His Father. And he knew that the Father loved him. And he wants us to be walking in that understanding and joining the kingdom and flipping it upside down and not needing to be pleased. Adulation. All of those things. Now let, let me just say this. What if this, let me put that one picture back up on the screen. What if this is some of us here? You go, what's the starting point? I, I would say it very simply this way. Repent. That's where it begins. You bow before God and confess your pride and your self-justification. That's where it begins. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, this picture that John wrote for us, you gave this to us, where your son, the one from heaven, picked up a, a bowl of water and began to wash the feet of the disciples. Lord, he put aside his kingdom and he served us. And Lord, I just thank you for this picture. And Lord, would this propel us to consider what it means to serve you? To give our lives to you in such a way where we would bow before you, we would humble ourselves before you and begin to serve you out of the purity of our hearts because you love us and you've demonstrated that love that because of that you sent your son. So Lord, help us serve this week. Lord, would you, through your Holy Spirit, challenge our motives even as we walk through this week as to why we do what we do, as to why we serve even our families, our friends, our, our, our at work. Change us from the inside out and humble us. Give us that humility that we have, that we need to serve you. So I give this day to you, I give this week to you, and may you be honored and praised in it. These things we pray in your name. Amen. If you don't know somebody around you today, introduce yourselves again. Have a great week. Have a great holiday tomorrow as well.